Charles, I'm so glad that you could join us, man. I'm a really big fan of your work. I read, um, you know, as everything that I see that comes out that you post or, or some, or I, someone else posts somewhere. I'm a, I, I like your taste and I like your work a lot. Well, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. It's, um, I think when you write uh, predominantly for an online audience, it often feels kind of like you're just uh, flinging your work into an abyss. And so uh, it's always a relief to hear that people are out there reading it, actually. It does. Yeah. No, I mean, I totally know what you mean. I do, or I have done a lot online writing. It can just feel right like nobody's ever going to look at this. <laughs> like, I just, I sent this to my editor and they published it. And, but like, is it really happening? Like, it's really hard to say. Because I hosted thousands of video interviews with oh like famous people online and people would be like, that was great, Ricky. And mentally, every one of them, I would be like, who the fuck cares? No one's going to see it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Within seconds, I yeah. could not accept the fact that anybody would actually ever see it. I just try, I try to spend more time working than having those thoughts, which I do. And so that's yes. why, you know, as long as you're in the process of completing one of these assignments, you can't be dwelling on people not reading the assignments. I was actually just, I was, I think it's on, I think you can leave season two. Um, there, there's a long thing about AOL blast. Yes, <laughs> that's like, me. I was like, is that Ricky? Is this specifically making fun of Ricky? Yeah, I think honestly, uh, the person who they're playing off that because this is a specific thing. It's um, Tommy Lee Jones, wasn't it? There was someone who brought up something to him, and he just one hundred percent was not having it. He kind of unloaded on this person. I wish I could remember what it was that set him off. Um, oh, was I, it? I, 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 I'm pretty sure it was uh, the infamously cranky Tommy Lee Jones. I think. Oh, because I had an incident where Russell Crowe like stormed off before the interview even like before the interview started it's like uh you know in the wizard of oz when dorothy meets the scarecrow and they do that little dance at that crossroads and they think about going all those directions then they end up going in that one direction I mean, all those other directions, just because they thought about it, became separate realities. I mean, they just went on from there and lived the rest of their life. One time I had lunch with Tolstoy. Another time I was a roadie for Frank Zappa. I may live badly, but at least I don't have to work to do it. The next person who passes us will be dead within a fortnight. Yourself? Oh, yeah. You, you know me. I've been uh, keeping up with my uh, JFK assassination theories, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. Welcome to 30 Years Later. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. Uh, this is your co-host, Chris Chafin. Chris, say hello the way that you always say hello, because this is how I always intro you. I don't know. I don't know what that's supposed. Do I don't know what that's supposed to mean, Ricky. The way I always you're saying it's not the, the same? way you always do it. That's not the way you do it. <laughs> hey, everybody. Um, uh, this week we are talking about uh, a bona fide classic in the same way that we talked about a bona fide classic last week, but a very different kind. We're talking about Richard Link Linklater's, um, many call it his debut film. It's actually not his debut film. I believe he had a feature length movie before this that just didn't get much attention or distribution that I, you can find on YouTube. I don't remember the name of it, but it's called Slacker. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, I believe, and then premiered in theaters 
in July, July 5th of 1991. We're about a week behind the eight ball on this one, but that's because um, we wanted to talk about it because it looked like nothing else good was, to, there was anything good to talk about. And we're tired of talking about bad movies <laughs> when we're out of good movies to talk about. Um, and we're joined today. Uh, we're very happy to be joined, very lucky to be joined by Charles Bermesco, a fantastic writer that you can find online who wrote a piece. He's actually the reason we're doing this episode because he wrote a piece called Slacker 30 years later, or I believe called something along those lines. Right, Charles? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That was the whole, just was a anniversary piece looking at this 30 years and how uh, certain aspects of it have, um, we see them in new lights based on the developments of the past 30 years. And because I have a Google alert for 30 years later to see if anyone's talking about our podcast, they're not. <laughs> I saw Charles's piece. No, I saw Charles's piece because I follow him on, on on Twitter. And it reminded me that we should talk about this movie and why not have Charles on the talk. So, Charles, thanks so much for being here. I'm really pleased to, to come on here. This is, a, this is a great movie to talk about. I'm curious. What did you guys talk about last week? We talked about Point Break last week. Point break, oh, yeah. my God. Love Point Break. Love Point Break. Slacker. Slacker is really the uh, point break of films in Austin where you just wander around and talk to people for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that is? That people are always saying that about the movie. Yeah, it's yeah no, I, I'm, I'm always saying this. And it's a very natural segue into today's show. So let's talk about um, first time we've seen this movie. I feel like I'd seen it a, a few times here and there and almost like peripherally until really sitting down to watch it the other night. It didn't feel like the first time I'd seen it because I could, I could recognize bits and pieces of it, but it felt like the first time I had really sat myself down to watch it from beginning to end, you know, without stopping or without being high or drunk in college. Um, <laughs> What about is, you guys? It's actually a pretty great background movie in all in all honesty. I think it's the sort of thing where like you could feasibly put it on, you know, project it against a wall at a party and people are like, sick movie, great visual for the to have on in the background. Uh but it's also, you know, if you're going to pay full attention to it, it's uh it is quite good, you'll find. Um I, I used to do that with, with Barry Lyndon when at in college. I would put on we could put on Barry Lyndon. Did people go for that? Were they into it? I I didn't really ask anybody, you know, so probably not. <laughs> but you didn't need I, to know. I was into it. I did see this in college for the first time, pretty sure. Like in a theater or you rented it or, you know, watched it in the dorm room? I bought this on DVD from the university library uh, because that is how I did most of my movie watching at the time during college. Uh, they had a huge, huge log of DVDs and there was a very friendly guy, weird guy, very short, had a long ponytail and an incredibly high, reedy voice like like Abraham Lincoln on Helium. He was very <laughs> And he, and he was like, he was like, have you seen Slacker? I'm in it. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. He totally feels like, you know, a Slacker-esque type personality, which really is, it, it's a type of personality. I hope we can talk about that, about how it's like very much a specific sort of person that populates this movie. Well, speaking of that, and I do totally agree with you, Charles, and I will just like to agree with Ricky, your piece was really great and insightful. And I thought it got at a lot of the things I found really interesting about the movie and, and would love to, to talk about. So I'm excited to talk to you. Um, Ricky, watching this movie, I said to myself, oh, this seems like the kind of movie Ricky would really, really like. Like, no wonder he wanted to do this on the show. You're telling me you've never seen this movie before? <laughs> like, I find that so hard no, to believe. No, I, I I have seen it, but I I think in bits and pieces, or if I did watch the whole thing, you know, I was young and I was probably, uh, I, I was probably consuming, you know, when I was in college, I was consuming so many movies all the time. And it yeah. really took something 
it often took something that was like provo- like really provocative, both aesthetically or within the content to, to kind of break through. Whereas like I probably watched um, Slacker and was like, oh, this is really cool. And I, I, I like Richard Linklater a lot, but I'm on a fast bender kick right now. You know, like that was probably what happened to me in college. Whereas now, like I can sit down and watch it and just sort of, I don't know, see it it feels like I'm not watching it for the first time, but seeing it with different older eyes. Well, yeah, I mean, well, like to me, it seemed like a movie you would be, you would really like. So did you, did, did, did you like it? I mean, if you're thinking a serious adult watch of, of slacker. Oh, I, I, I absolutely love this movie. Um, I, I, my only hard, my only hard time with it though, is that like I've, in the past couple of years, I've, I've rewatched a fair amount of Linklater and my prop, my, my, my problem with Linklater is that when he, when it comes to his good movies, uh, every time I watch one of them, I'm like, oh, this is my favorite Rick Linklater movie. <laughs> um, and that happened with Slacker last night, where I was like, oh, I think this is actually my favorite Rick Linklater movie. <laughs> but like forgetting that every time I watch Everybody Wants Some, I'm immediately like, oh, this might just be one of my favorite movies. Um, but I love, I mean, I love all of his movies. And I one of the things that I really liked about this was having seen all of his work, it's all in this movie. I yeah, right. I, th- I felt the same way. Yeah, definitely. Like me, like Waking Life, for example. I was like, I had never seen this movie before, although I had seen lots of his other films. And I was like, oh, so Waking Life is just this exact movie, but it's a cartoon, and he's dead. You know, but like other than that, it's almost exactly the same. But Waking Life, I mean, Dazed and Confused, the way Dazed and Confused flows between characters and scenarios. And the way that, um, yeah, and Waking Life is sort of a spiritual sequel to Slacker. And then even the way that you watch, you can just see him developing yeah. so many techniques that he'll use in all of his movies. And then even the way he talks at the top of the movie, his introduction to what the movie is going to be, you know, like tell, basically telling the audience exactly what's going to happen in the movie, which is so smart. Um you hear Ethan, I hear Ethan Hawke in Before Sunrise. Like they just sort of talk alike and behave in a similar, like Ethan Hawke was doing an impression of Richard Linklater in Before Sunrise. Um, it, it just all feels a, a very much a, a piece of Linklater's in, in entire body of work, which is it's pretty hard to do for a filmmaker. I think um, the through line here is his kind of uh, unquenchable sense of intellectual curiosity, that he's someone who is really willing to listen to anyone speak at length about a topic of their interest. We see that in Waking Life, which is really, you know, made up of all these sort of tangents. Um, But even, you know, something like Bernie, the way uh, it opens with him making this very methodical, careful explanation of uh, mortician techniques, he, Linklater, I think, uh, has a genuine interest in people and especially in the unexplored sort of things that odd personalities have to share. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, uh, that was what I thought really would resonate with you, Ricky, because there's nothing Ricky likes more than like being cornered by a weirdo for an extended period of time <laughs> and talked at. Like he, he's very sincerely completely is into that. <laughs> and uh, well, I was like, like oh, this- yeah, totally. Yeah. The scene where um, the uh, pap smear person shows up and is telling that story of the guy with the gun driving down the street and they say, he laughed all the way, man. I was just like, I, that's like, I would be standing there being like, I love this person so much. I will follow them to the, till the ends of the earth. I will buy this pap smear off of them to keep them talking to me. It's uh, Teresa Nervosa from uh, Butthole Surfers, drummer for the uh, Butthole Surfers. For real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, I didn't fucking know that. That's incredible. I was wondering. So, I mean, the the movie is kind of filled with all of these very cool people that Richard Linklater just kind of knew from around the area and was like, hey, want to come be in my movie? I'm sure for either no money or, or a pittance of money. There's um the co-founder of the Austin Chronicle, Lewis Black, who also yeah. did South by Southwest Festival. One of his professors at UT Austin, uh, Lewis Mackey, who taught philosophy is also there he's the uh, old um anarchist who you know persuades the robber not to burgle his home and instead to you know join the uh collective efforts of the underclass it's it's a uh, it's you know full of a lot of easter eggs like that uh athena Rachel who would direct a chevalier uh who who went to school in texas for a little while is there very briefly she's the cousin i mean it very much has the feel of that like if you've ever been part of the creative scene in a city, it's just like all yeah. your weird friends, you know, and like some of them are in the butthole surfers and some of them are just like weirdos, you know, but it's like, they're just all part of, they very much seem like they were all part of the same click, you know, in a certain way. Do you yeah. think that there was a person, there was like people who were part of that click, but didn't make it in the movie and were pissed off yeah, at Richard Linklater? For, so, so it's like everybody, seems like you're putting everybody in the movie, Rick. I don't know. The, Is there a part for me? Yeah, and, uh, Martin Scorsese, he's like, where's my Irishman role? Where are we on that? Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you guys think of the opening of the movie? Or actually, let me let me backtrack here. So the movie was made, Charles, for how much did he make the movie for? Uh, I believe, yeah, 23 grand, uh, which he made Crazy. with borrowed money, credit card borrowing, um, really just, you know, pocket change, pretty much, couch change. And what am I wrong to say that this isn't actually his first feature? I, I, I yeah, no, he, had, um, he had made a film, uh, which I think would believe it even more experimental than this one called It's Impossible to Learn to Plow by Reading Books, yes. which uh, has the same sort of like bare bones non-plot about a guy who really just goes on a walkabout. Uh, he meets various people and they just, you know, have these very abstract conversations about like life, man. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's actually good. I mean, it's good. Um, Daniel Johnston, the guy who did the little, uh, whatchamacallit, the doodle uh, called High Yeah, the little frog with the big eyes. Yeah, yeah we yeah. all, yeah, Daniel Johnston. Uh, he's in it, uh, another sort of, you know, cool dude that he knew. But so yeah, by this point, he had the technical skills to make a film uh, in the way that we see here, which is defined a lot by loose improvisation, but um, not, you know, sloppiness uh, by constant motion, but not aimlessness. Uh, it has a sort of disguised sense of discipline because he wants it to feel so loose and so um, kind of exploratory, like you're like wandering around. It's which is, I, I think, kind of a difficult sensation to convey via film. Well, I mean, it's so specifically choreographed, right? Like, it, it, right. as much as it's supposed to seem like you're wandering around, you also, by the second story, get a crane shot that, like, yeah. you know, yeah. goes from yeah. someone walking up into the air into another apartment and then, like, up the stairs of the apartment. I believe like, it goes up the stairs. But it's a pretty difficult shot to pull off choreographic, like, in terms of choreography. And then on top of that, throughout the movie, as you're choosing... He, he constantly surprises you as to whose story he's going to pick up with, right? Like yeah. in most of these, it would be like something big happens and then you follow the person who started that big chain. But so often and it's, it's like you stick with these people for a long time. They're going to a show and then they get to a show and then just two people get on a bike and ride away and you follow those two people. It's a very... It's a very smart way of choosing who who he's going to follow. So you're always kind of 
trying to catch up with the movie and figure out why, why are we following these new people? Right. I think um, it's, it's funny, you know, to talk about the structuring that sort of uh, follows various people, there's often a physical object. Like you would expect this to be like the journey of like pocket change as it goes from all these right, different people, right. different transactions. That's kind of what I mean. Larjan is much more intelligent about that than I'm making it sound, but that's the <laughs> idea. It follows this dollar through all the people who use it or like, oh, Hazar Bathazar, which is like all the people who meet this donkey. And the way that Linklater is able to do it without any sort of structuring mechanism like that. Like he puts his trust in the audience that it's not, you know, the story of this thing that's informed by all this people that go through it. It is literally just uh, the collective of people and, and the sum of their personalities, which goes to, yeah, creating a profile for this area, like which was a, a scene with a lucid sense of identity. It was like a cool place to be. And you really feel why that was uh, watching the movie. And now Linklater was a Sundance Lab guy, right? Did he make this at the Sundance Lab or was this a part of his, like what he was working on there or was his Sundance experience following Slacker? Um, this I think was made in the most independent sense uh, of all. There was no, I don't think, uh, cooperation with Sundance on this one at least. Um, although I don't know, maybe, maybe, but not not to my knowledge. No, I think it was really like completely off uh, the industry grid. It did play at Sundance. Yeah, it was like one of the first big Sundance movies, I think, in right. some in some respects. Like in terms of the 90s being defined by like Sundance independent film, it's like Slacker, Reservoir Dogs, and then so on and so forth after that. Yeah, uh, I mean, speaking relatively to how small the budget was, it was a huge hit. I mean, it made $1.2 million. It's like That's when crazy. we spent $23,000 making, uh, it's like the printed money. Um, so... I mean, it is honestly like inspirational to think about because like... Making one point two million dollars, even in 1991, that's like a you know a dismal failure, right? But if you made the movie yourself for twenty three thousand dollars and it's exactly the movie you wanted to make, like that's such an amazing result. It's amazing that something like that is possible. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, in the yeah. most literal sense, I find it inspirational. Like it is inspiring to me. It makes me very nostalgic for the audiences of the 90s, that there were enough people who were vibrating on this wavelength and like wanted to see this movie and probably see it again, like with friends or whatever. I just feel like. Um, yeah, I don't want to think about how things would play out if this had happened in the present day. It would it would be a genre it would be a genre film today, right? That's the only yeah. way you could make your money back is if you do like a twenty three thousand dollars for a paranormal activity. I don't think I just don't see large audiences being like, let's go to the cinema to see this movie because I'm curious what a kid did with $23,000. You'd have to be like, how did they do a ghost story with $23,000? How are they going to give us the, are they going to be able to sort of give us the thrills that a, a $5 million movie would for $23,000? There's more of like a stakes gamble thing rather than you know, just, I'm curious. You know what I'll say is a movie like Tangerine, I think is not that far removed from something like this mm. because there's not only, because there's an element of like, you can't forget that a movie like this is absolutely at the cutting edge of what is like the coolest and most interesting stuff going on in the entire world. And so, you know, in a certain sense, and, and I think, you know, Tangerine had kind of a certain, a similar, I mean, not only was it a very cheap movie, but it was telling a story that was like really resonated with people like at that exact moment, you know, it was like very keyed into what was going on in the culture and in people's minds. And, um, you know, this has got that same kind of thing. I mean, this is a little bit more like overtly like a cool thing. I know Tangerine is not like trying to be cool necessarily, but like it was. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, that's like a cool movie. 
Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's the true independent cinema. And I think um, especially when you look at Gen X, people responded to that. There were like generational ideals that were held by a lot of people and especially people who wanted to like consider themselves cool and informed. And so this became a thing to see to be, you know, at the cusp of that uh, kind of cultural moment, um, which has now pretty firmly passed us by. <laughs> you know, you watch this, the whole you feel the 30 years because there is no sense of collective cultural and philosophical identity like the one posited by this movie in in millennials i'm a millennial no i completely agree with you charles and that was the feeling that i had throughout the majority of the movie was that what austin is like now Um, and what and not even just what austin is like now but what these small cities and 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 cool artistic towns are kind of kind of feel like now or even a city like new york new york feels like now it doesn't it, the, these communities or these pockets where just weirdos can kind of exist or you know coexist around each other, making sporadic amounts of money and still being able to believe in their their philosophical ideas doesn't feel like a uh, a reality anymore. And I think that that no city shows that it feels like a relic of a bygone age. But I mean, it made me nostalgic for living in Brooklyn in 2009 to 2011. And, and I do wonder if it's not just like that I'm old. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I, maybe there are still 23 year olds that are living like this and it's just so far outside of my experience. Although I do think there would be crucial differences between then and now, but I, I do think there are like people in Bushwick that are like trying to have a feminist clothing label or something do you know what i mean yeah you're right my only experience with young people that are like you know people that are like 23 is like the kid on tiktok who was like i live in an entrepreneur house there's 12 <laughs> of us you know there's 12 of us sharing a house that's eighteen thousand dollars, and like we all five of us in a room like that's like my experience and like watching slacker was just kind of like oh my god like these people lived in a house not because they were like trying to be entrepreneurs or sell an app or like you know, make as much money as possible, but because they didn't really buy into the system as, as much as you want to, you know, someone could say that that's cliche or bullshit, but you know, so much of these characters are defined, their ideas and their philosophies are defined by being um, against, against the capitalist system in, in, in some way. Yeah. The, um, I mean, the economic aspect is the whole thing, because if we look at these, you know, um, sociological shifts in Brooklyn and Austin, wherever it's all from rising rents. As soon as you make somewhere expensive, cool people can't live there anymore. And so uh, the culture that they bring with them will shift elsewhere. I think I, or, or cool people that can't just be defined by being right. Instead right. of being, def- instead of being defined by their, their work. Well, this is something I think about a lot, Ricky, and it's basically what you were just saying, which is that in previous generations, this type of person had a kind of like, core level rejection of capitalist culture and for like as much as everybody talks about how they reject capitalism these days like all day on twitter i really feel like there's a lot more of an acceptance of capitalism like everybody's trying to sell something or even if you have like an only fans right do you know what i mean like that everybody is constantly trying to make money all the time whereas in 1991 that was just not really done. And it was extremely uncool to be thinking about how to make money or how to monetize the weird thing you were doing. It's like you were just doing it, you know? Right. I'm against capitalism, but did you hear how Loki is gender fluid? I'm against capitalism and read about it in my sub stack, which is $5.99 a month. And like, you know, (laughs) this was, I mean, uh, you know, especially 
so what we're talking about, this kind of lends itself to a certain lifestyle because the people who have managed to carve out this sense of independence for themselves, they also like kind of live in shambles and they live on ramen. Uh, But that was kind of the ideal that it was, I mean, it's kind of post hippie that they were like, as long as I have enough money for like soup and rent and weed, that's kind of it, you know, Um, which is comforting. But I also think uh, really limits itself to, it takes a certain sort of personality. Like I was saying that, the people who want to live with like stability, for instance, uh, which is, I think, a pretty reasonable thing to want, uh, can't really resonate with that. And so the whole, you know, thing of life is the negotiation between like, you know, how much of my integrity am I willing to trade in for things that I find uh, comfortable or things that please me. Uh, and the issue I think today is that that consideration is not even being you know, conducted anymore, that people uh, don't really stop to think about that aspect and that even thinking about that aspect has become like a distasteful thing to do like you know uh you would begrudge someone their ability to make money i'm just like i don't know sometimes (laughs) yeah like sometimes yeah for sure (laughs) you know like there's a yeah well just what you were saying i mean there's a there's a great story about del close you know who's like the founder of improv or whatever and i forget whose story this is so that's kind of a knock on me and i apologize but basically they were saying they interviewed del close when uh they were just a, a teen or something and he's telling all these stories about all these you know famous people that he knows and you know projects he's worked on and but they're the whole time the interview's happening they're sitting in this house in chicago where like the windows are broken out and like the it's winter and it's like you know zero degrees and like the wind is coming in and you know he's living in this like absolute shambles like you were saying like squalor and the the person whose story it is said like wow well like imagine what i could do if i did all this stuff but i wasn't like also addicted to drugs like i bet i could be really rich and famous and yeah they were right you know when did it be when did it begin when it was like I mean, uh, it's always been there, but I, I, for me, it was always when you started seeing the bands that you liked from the '90s appearing in car commercials. And then I vaguely remember an interview with Wayne Coyne of the Flaming Lips, who was never against selling out. I mean, he's in Beverly Hills 90210, but him saying kind of like, "I'll give any, I'll give any song to a car commercial. It's money. What do you want me to do?" And then it just seemed like, in my recollection, it was just like. After that, everybody started doing it. Like, it just wasn't even a thing anymore to think about it. Well, you know? I think the nuance that I try to append to this is that if people are just like, I am going to do this, uh, you know, sort of ethically dubious thing to get money, I'm just like, all right, but what is that money being used for? Because if that is being used to continually finance your own intensely uncommercial, unprofitable work, I kind of get that. Like, sure. um, right, yeah. One thing of like uh, Steven Soderbergh, I believe, like takes uh, markup jobs. Like he does script doctor stuff so that he can continue uh, making his own his own movies the way that he wants to. There are other people. What? Wait, Steven Soderbergh still does script doctor jobs? I think I think he does like rewrites on stuff uncredited. Uh, I, I I don't know. But like I know Marvel that- movies or something like what are you Where talking the about? Fuck, does this guy get the time? He shoots <laughs> and edits his own movies. Well, I mean, the way he shoots and edits them, it takes like, I think what he bragged, but he was like on a long day's train ride. He edited the entirety of High Flying Bird. Isn't that right? It was like six hours flat on like a New York to somewhere else train. I don't know. And you know what? It's a tangent, but my problem with No Sudden Move and High Flying Bird is that um, as great as some moments are, the, the bulk of it feels like someone who's just trying to get there, get through the day. It doesn't, they, they don't really have any sort of 
they just don't feel like there's anything being pushed or aesthetically challenged outside of one idea, right? Like no sudden move. The one idea was we're going to shoot this with a warped lens. Okay, great. But can you also maybe get Matt Damon to get through his monologue without flubbing it? Like that'd be pretty great too. We could get a performance out of him. Um, and the same thing with high flying bird. I get that the actors know you have to show up and you have to hit it really quickly because Steven's not going to care, but what if he did care? <laughs> That'd be pretty great. Right. Out of sight's pretty awesome. Seemed like he cared on that one. I, um, I think, you know, he has showed up for everything except laundromat. That was the only one that I saw where I was like, this feels kind of slapdash rush job. Um, I think, you know, even High Flying Bird, how good his scripts are, get him very far with me. I mean, High Flying Bird is a very well-written movie, and so I'm willing to yes. go wherever it's taking me in that respect. Um, how did we get on this topic? What were, what were we talking about? Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I just, well, I had, I had like a very visceral reaction to No Sudden Move last week. So any reference to Soderbergh, I'm triggered and, 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 I, yeah. and I run for it. That's on me. Uh, and I love Soderbergh. Don't get me wrong. I love so many of his, so many of his movies. Um, well, we were talking about selling out and how the movie kind of yeah. encapsulates, and I'm sure this is going to come up when we talk about the most nineties moment of the movie, but you know, it really does encapsulate the sort of like anti sellout culture of the nineties, the sort of corporate rock magazines still suck t-shirt on the corporate rock magazine yeah. culture that was, that came to define a large portion of the nineties. Yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> I agree. I agree, Ricky. It was, it's just, it's so easy to forget. I just feel like there's a feeling now, it's kind of a bunch of things put together, but it's like the bottom dropped out of a non-sellout-y way to support yourself in the arts. So the idea, it just kind of became accepted that like, well, if you need, if you want to work in the arts at all, you have to do like the grossest, most sellouty stuff you can possibly imagine all the time. And because otherwise you can't support yourself. So it became very accepted to do that kind of thing. And then I also just think there's an idea that like there is you know, the taxation system in America is so fucked up. There's so much money floating around. It just seems like so easy to get rich if you do, uh, if you just like sell out a little bit or, you know, whatever. And it just seems like everybody, like nobody can get mad at anybody for just trying to grab a bunch of money out of the air. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've uh, honestly, I've dealt with this myself. I, uh, to keep the bills paid, I aggregate news, which is the very lowest and most ignoble form of writing. Uh, and this guy I knew was like, hassled me about it. I was writing something and he was just like, oh, look at this like lame news item about like this stupid inconsequential thing. And I wanted to tell that guy to jump up his own ass. Um, <laughs> because, you know, uh, it, 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 you gotta eat, you gotta put food on the table and gotta keep the lights on. Um, but I think it's when you start not needing the money and just doing things to have more money. What did I, uh, I saw something where it was another like it was a song that was licensed for a commercial from a band I really care about uh, and I don't remember and I but I do remember thinking to myself I said I don't know what would be more depressing them needing the money because I, I feel like it was a relatively successful group that has been around for a while I'm like I don't know what would be more sad for them to still be needing money or for them to not need the money and to just have done this uh, right. Yeah. Well, it's like these court, you know, uh, creative, every creative person has become a tiny corporation and the only metric of success is increased revenue, you know? Yeah. I always get, and I think there was like a Bill Hicks, speaking of Austin, but I think there was like a Bill Hicks bit about Jay Leno shilling for Doritos oh, back yeah. in the day. Yeah. And I always think of that bit when I see like Jimmy Fallon doing like a Citibank commercial or like LeBron doing like a city. Like, what is this? They don't need the money for that. That's yeah. Not 
Exactly. Like you need no money whatsoever. I realize it's only going to be two hours of work for you and like maybe and probably like a few million more dollars. But what the fuck are you doing? You're going to you're going to shill for a bank. At least Jay Leno did it for snacks. Now you're doing you're doing it for like the, the capitalist system itself. And you don't you don't need any of this money. And if you're LeBron James, it's like you're the world's like best basketball player. You're fabulously well paid for playing basketball. Like, why do you why even waste your time doing like being in a fucking commercial for something? Like, who cares? You know? Hang out with your kids. Yeah, hang out with your kids. <laughs> hang out with your friends, dude. Play basketball, you know? I don't know. Play video games. These are all the things that Slacker has has brought up for us. <laughs> yeah. But it is. Well, the other big thing, and I, you know, not to like cannibalize what I'm gonna talk about later, but um, uh, one of the things you talked about in your piece, Charles, which I, I found myself thinking about a lot watching this movie, was the way that this movie is about eccentrics, but it's in a pre-internet context where they are isolated instead of being connected. Um, could yeah. you tell me, because you wrote about this a lot in your piece, could you tell yeah, me a little so bit this, about this? Uh, yeah. This was the thing that when I revisited this movie kind of dawned on me. that So a lot of the people who are in this movie could be fairly classified as kooks, uh, but they are all kooks in what I consider to be a harmless way, what my friend uh, refers to as an ineffectual way. That is to say that they're <laughs> not capable of doing much harm in a widespread way, because in the pre-internet world, these uh, weirdos, we, you know, we meet a um, JFK conspiracy theorist at a bookstore who goes into some like Oliver Stone, JFK type craziness. Uh, there's a guy who is convinced that UFOs are real and that we have all been on the moon since the fifties. And, you know, these both, uh, those two seem like, you know, um, odd things to be into peccadillos perhaps but um uh, that guy rules when he says bye to the person who doesn't want to talk to him anymore and he's like i'll just hang out here look around <laughs> <laughs> like he's got to keep watch on this house i love that oh yeah oh yeah um everyone everyone's doing their own thing like no one is bothered by uh, people leaving them or the camera leaving them they're like i'll get back to what i'm doing uh but my point was is that um these people uh, in the 90s, you know, it was just a kooky thing that you would talk about with your friends when you were in physical spaces making contact with other human beings, which I cannot emphasize the importance of that enough because we draw a contrast with the world of today in which the isolation of the internet kind of lends uh, itself. Uh, it, it, it engenders weird mutated behaviors like this you know you believe yeah. things about jfk so you go googling and then you learn weirder things and then next thing you know you're a QAnon person um yeah and, and you're so, connecting with other people that have similar beliefs than you and you're reinforcing each other and driving each other to be more extreme and then even in a lot of cases like corporations are marketing things at you via your extreme yeah. beliefs and like no i mean uh, internet was a big 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 mistake uh clearly <laughs> There's also the idea like the like interacting within physical spaces. It's like someone with crazy ideas or kook ideas as as you said, when they approach someone in a personal space, it's actually a much but usually as this movie shows, it's a it's a much more calm, pleasant interaction even if the person is kind of a kook. Like you listen to a kook for a few minutes, you let them get it out of their system, and then you kind of walk away. What does it matter? You know, and, and just give like, them the space and the time. But as soon as that kook posts something online, everybody immediately is like, you fucking idiot. You're fucking dumbass piece of shit. How could you fucking believe this? And then that person gets radicalized and finds that other community that is just going to allow them to talk. The human brain was not meant to be aware of this many different people's opinions. We, we, yes. we yes. were not meant yes. to know about this many things. 
Yes. No. And I, I just think, and I also think Ricky, you're right. It's this thing about being in the personal space with other people. It's like, it makes the kook be more concerned. Like they don't want to scare you off with like acting weird. Like they, because they really want to tell you the crazy thing that they have to tell you. So a lot of times they're actually like very weirdly polite, you know, which is a big contrast to the way these people behave on the internet, you know? What were you going to say, Charles? Oh, no, just that I think like the simple fact of having to learn how to be around other people went so far, you know, like having contact with human beings keeps a person from developing weird aberrant behavior. And like the only way to share your beliefs with another with another person in this world was to be with other people in physical space. Do you know what I mean? And that brings with it a whole bunch of like societal restrictions and behavior restrictions. And, you know, like you have to kind of be you have to kind of on some level be a normal person in order to even ever discuss these things with someone. There's also the sense that during the movie, the guy that we just talked about who believes that, you know, we've already landed on, on Mars and he's just talking a mile a minute and they're all, you know, kooky opinions and hilarious. And he follows the guy home walking with him and then says he'll stand outside and, or maybe it's, you know, it's the guy's friend's house that he follows him or something too. And he says, I'm just going to stand out here. And the guy goes, okay, no problem, man. And then, like, he goes inside. I just imagine that, like, if someone were to do that now, even myself, I'd be like, no, get the fuck away from my house, <laughs> all right? Like, get out of here. There's, like, the the fear of violence, the fear of the kook actually, like, doing something un- physically violent to you is much more prevalent, even though physical violence was probably actually literally more prevalent in the late 80s, early 90s. Um but there's something within this movie. They're just kind of like, yeah, man, hang out, do your thing. And rather than telling them to fuck off. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, just this idea that we have, I mean, like you're saying that Charles the Internet's a bad idea, like that we have this system now where all of these kooks are connected to each other 24 hours a day. It's so sad. And it almost makes it hard to appreciate a movie like Slacker if you've never seen it before, because so much of the stuff is recognizable <laughs> to somebody who in 2020 is on the internet, which that was another thing that struck me was a lot of these, you know, conspiracy theories, quote unquote, like the conspiracy theories haven't changed, even though obviously there are new ones. But also, like, some of these conspiracy theories are like mainstream thought now, like for the good and for the bad, I would say, you know. Well, so the thing about um, conspiracy theories, which I think this uh, film is very astute about, is that the conspiracy theorists' attitude that the government can't really be trusted because they're up to some shit is accurate. That is true, because, like, there's been a lot of clandestine shit that um, sort of fosters conspiratorial thought. Uh, However, it's always the expressions, like the details that uh, this mindset expresses that is where you start to go awry, that there's always, you know, tinfoil hat shit instead of really, you know, sort of sound institutional analysis, which is, you know, harder and less fun than than just coming up with stuff. Well, speaking of that, of of the conspiratorial mind and the kook stuff, the first thing that you really that you bring up in your article is um, Linklater's association with Alex Alex Jones, having cast him in two of the movies um, in which he'll probably be asked about for the rest of his career, as long as Alex Jones is bad for this poor guy, this should just be put to bed. Cause there's like a pretty definitive daily beast interview in 2018 where he like explains where he comes from with this, which is, I think totally valid. He's like, Hey, when I was growing up in Texas, he was just a crazy dude who was on either he was on. Yeah. Public access TV. He did not have a national audience. He did not have the president's ear. It was just like this weird yelling guy that when you were in a fucking 
friends late at night, you would have a good laugh uh, watching him. In the same way that I had a good laugh watching Infowars videos before it became a whole thing because people are out of their, their coconut kind of thing, which is obviously funny in the detached pre-internet world of the 90s uh, or, you know, 2000s, I guess, in that instance, um, that is now gone. And, you know, these people can get a global audience uh, just, you know, like that. Well, my, I mean, my, my opinion about the, uh, about Alex Jones is like, he could keep casting Alex Jones in his movies. I don't care. I genuinely don't care. Um, you know, the Ricky's intention of the such the, a fun maverick and I love you. No, the intention of the movie is what's important. You know, like I, I, I just don't think, uh, I, 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 I just, and the fact that he's going to be consistently asked about this, because Alex Jones is always going to make news. So now if Richard Linklater makes a movie, you can be like, Alex Jones is in the news again. Let's get a headline from Richard Linklater about it. Do you regret casting him? And no. he's going to get, and, and Linklater is going to get pissed off, but people are going to do it every movie. But this is like exactly what I was talking about before about the internet, Ricky, is like Alex Jones is the, I mean, and like you said, Charles, he's the perfect example of somebody who is a kook and a crank in isolation. But on the internet, I mean, he has legitimately harmed the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, he's a monster who's done like materially harmed other people. The Sandy lives. Hook denialism stuff is like really, really atrocious. But you know what I mean? So I think it's not unreasonable to ask him about because it. it's like it is it's bad do you know what oh, I mean? but then he said his piece can... if i'm someone asking him about that he'd be like am i can i refer back to you you know the last time i talked about this and settled this you know i don't know right which I is something know. that like tarantino i think has had to do in like every interview these days as well in terms of like violence in movies i've said my piece about that look you know go find that and just reference that at this point i, I mean i think it's a litmus test for the whole concept of cancellation quote-unquote right and i i do kind of think when he like exactly what you're saying charles like if i see him in something it's like i know he's been he's gotten paid he gets to be in a thing that is like a normal thing that he gets to say he's in this normal thing and it's like you know if anybody in the world deserves to be canceled i feel like alex jones does but you know i don't know but i know what you're saying too ricky that he's just like a kook with a crazy energy and a movie director's job is to you know find the people that embody these kinds of characters and bring a kind of crazy energy to the screen and like who cares what his politics are you know and i would say that about somebody like who is just like privately has crazy political opinions but when you have a whole company with millions of viewers and the whole Fair. thing is built Fair. on whipping millions of people into some kind of frenzy with false information like that crosses a line to me you know uh okay so yeah back to uh Flacker. <laughs> where do we i oh when i was in high school and in early college like a really big important movie for me was um david gordon green's george washington um oh. I just, I really, I really loved that film. And there was something about Slacker that really reminded me of it in the sense that just technically I could imagine David Gordon Green watching Slacker and being like, okay, how do I do a version of this movie where like, cause David Gordon Green had said like, I needed to make something where if I lost a scene or the film, it didn't really matter. And it kind of felt like Slacker is like a pretty big inspiration uh for that like how to make a low budget movie where it's like on the technical end because you have so little money certain things are not going to matter and it's going to be okay if something goes wrong in this department you know <laughs> he makes um i guess you could call them like hangout movies which you know are sure. really actually their time and place dazed and confused obviously being the sort of 
a spiritual successor to Slacker because it's, you know, about, you know, cool scene, cool people, cold beers, good times, uh, which I think is something that so many people try so hard to emulate. Or even, you know, the before trilogy also, this kind of thing, what if you follow these two people around, you know, um, which there's such a beautiful simplicity to his movies that only works because he's such a gifted writer of dialogue. Yeah, I don't know if uh, any of his movies that really hinge on plot end up working, you know, like uh, maybe Scanner Darkly, but that movie's actually personally never worked well, really never worked for me. Um, all the movies of his that I like are what you re- would refer to, yeah, as, as hangout movies. I mean, you know? the the anomaly, I guess, maybe the exception that proves the rule, School of Rock, which is a very conventionally structured, plot-driven Hollywood movie and also amazing and the best thing ever, obviously. Never seen it. What? I know, I've never seen School of Rock. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me, Ricky? You've never seen School of Rock? I know. I just haven't seen it. I just haven't. It just, oh it just, I just haven't seen I it. Just, I just, I mean, you got to rectify just, that at your earliest possible. Uh, it's just a fun, it's just a fun, whatever movie, you know, Mike I've always White thought it was fun. It, there was know? no reason. There was no reason. And I love Mike White. Oh yeah. He's great. So let's do, let's do our final questions here. Right. Charles, I, I emailed them to you literally five minutes before we started. So you might not have seen them. <laughs> uh, and for that, I apologize. Um, but we have three questions that we ask at the end of every episode. Um, the first one is, uh, very simply, what was your favorite part of the movie? My favorite part is the end. Uh, I talk about this a little bit in the piece I wrote, but the end is kind of transcendent where there is, um, we shift to, I believe eight millimeter super eight photography, uh, sped up, played at, I think like 1.25 time. Uh, and it's just, yeah, this group of friends, like they take a car, they go out, you know, walk into nature, run up to the top of this sort of, uh, precipice type, I don't know, cliff area and they hang out there and they show a couple of symbolically significant books and then they toss the camera over the cliff and it goes spinning and spinning and spinning. And then we cut to black. Oh, and it's just, uh, so perfect. It's like a little taste of oblivion to end the movie, which I find, um, poetic and what happens, it's also funny and exciting and it's really charged with the ephemeral energy of youth. It's about how all this stuff is too good to last, which I think is just the perfect way to end the movie. And that really reminded me of boyhood. Just going back to this idea that like, there's this through line through all of his movies and it's all in slacker for me, but that reminded me of the end of boyhood where he goes out on into the, into nature with that girl and they take mushrooms and he starts talking about time. Um, It just felt like that, that, that spirit of that moment of life, they're similar ages and it's a a similar experience. Uh, Chris, what was your favorite part? Um, Well, we've kind of been talking about this, but this is kind of also a cop-out answer, but um, I like, the courage and the sort of like cockiness that this movie has in the way that it is, you know, a plotless series of conversations that share some kind of like emotional resonance in a certain way or kind of vibe at a similar level. That was a very nineties thing that was, I mean, and so it's kind of also the most nineties thing. It was like, you know, movies like, you know, whatever clerks, Barcelona, you know, Quentin Tarantino movies. Right. I mean, there was this idea that you could make a movie like this, but I think this movie like predates almost all of those movies. And I would say it's more plotless than almost all of them too. So like, I just, I really enjoyed that. I really, really enjoyed that. I thought it was like, and that has a lot to do with the people being interesting and you know, the nineties being this particular moment, but like, I, I thought that was really well done. My uh, my favorite part is um, 
the uh, the guy who just got out of prison, who you don't find out that he just got out of prison until his like his last line, um, <laughs> just like he jumps in the back of the car from the guys who've just taken the uh, the muffler or whatever from the garage and or from the the, the dump, and uh, he's talking about just having gotten back from a funeral, and they're like, "Sorry, man." He's like, "I'm not." They should leave him to rot. He was my stepdad. <laughs> just, I love that character so much. I love his look. He's so specific to the '90s. Like, I could have like, if I knew that guy, I could have built an entire noir around him. Like, he could have been a henchman or maybe even the lead villain in a noir oh movie. But then he's just like, and then he they pull up to the to the cafe, and he 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 goes, hey, he. <laughs> He aggressively bums two cigarettes off of somebody, but says he's bumming one, but he takes two out of the pack. And then he gets he gets asked about whether or not he works and he delivers this beautiful monologue about like, you know, not working and, you know, it, you're a slave to the system if you do work. And then he goes into a store and some guy's like, hey, do you want to take my spot? And he starts playing Double Dragon or something. And that's the end of his story. And it's just a beautiful, like, a, like he's a really aggressive and possibly possible scumbag, but the movie does not treat him as such. And even lets you know at the end that this guy just got out of fucking prison. Like, um, and I, I, I love the way that they handle that character. And I do it. There's so, there is such an affection for all of these people, which I think we haven't really talked about, but it's like, yeah, so many of them are cranks and weirdos and, you know, people that if you were cornered by them, you might like immediately try to get away, you know, if you're me, for example. But like the movie is very, very sympathetic to them. And just even when they are like a possibly a real scumbag, it's like, oh, you know, and then they just went and played video games for a while. Like, you know, it's just very like humanizing, you know? Um, uh, so the next question that we ask is, um, what is the most 90s uh, thing about this movie? Which, like every episode we do, is really the gist of the entire episode, everything that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. I think especially with Slacker. But there's for one, you... There's oh, go ahead, Charles. That, that we haven't gotten into that I think would fit really well with this, which um, sums up the whole type deal, which is, um, uh, I don't remember who it is, but it's the Brian Eno, uh, the card that that they give off. What is oh, it? Oh, the 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 oblique strategies. The oblique strategies. That's right. Where it says that withdrawing and disgust is not the same thing as apathy. I mean, that is the spirit of the '90s counterculture distilled down to a single phrase, uh, and then it shows up right there in the movie, which is just so perfect. And I mean, With, did, did you have a sense, because you talk, wrote about this in the piece a little bit too, like wh- what is the interplay in your mind between like this movie creating that culture and this movie being a product of that culture? I think you know, it's that's a chicken and egg scenario. I think that the culture existed and this movie was made that sort of crystallized it for a lot of people who might not have necessarily been in Austin or for a lot of the people who were maybe younger and on the outside looking in from this kind of lifestyle and wanted to be part of it. Um, but I don't think it's as simple as, you know, one, uh, being, you know, the cause of the other. I think in terms of that sort of, uh, withdrawing and disgust is not, what's, what's the quote again, Charles? Uh, withdrawing and disgust is not the same thing as apathy. Right. And that being this sort of sense of the nineties, when we talk about these movies, especially at this point in 1991 and this sort of like what came first, this movie or the culture that came after it, like, you know, never Nevermind is being released this year. There, there is the there is the sort of famous changeover that's going to happen from hair metal to grunge. Forgive me, really, for even bringing that up. I just didn't have a better <laughs> example. Um, but there, like, we forget that we always think of the '90s as Clinton, but like, this is the 11th year 
of a Republican administration in this country and the, and the war and just say no and all, and all of this shit that's going on. And so yeah, like Gulf war makes, and like, yeah. Yeah. Imagine if, if imagine if John McCain had won after George W. Bush, like what it would have felt like in 2011, you know, it would have been, yeah. I, I mean, I, I can't, I can't imagine it would have been like this because the economy is just a completely different beast, but like, the with withdrawing and disgust at this point feels uh, feels pretty much like the only option for for a lot of people after eleven years of seemingly eleven years of ish of Reagan. You know, yeah, the whole Reagan thing and the whole thing about the Reagan culture wasn't just that he would kept winning the presidency; it was that he was so popular with so many people. He was winning in fucking historical landslides. Yeah, I know. It was like this is what America is, right? You know. The other it's a very alienating we, feeling. I think if you're like not a Reaganite, and in fact, if, if Reagan represents everything you hate in the world, and you feel like you're living in Reagan's America, uh, you kind of you know see where all this comes from. Of course, you want to get out of all of this. Yeah, I, I'm gonna cop out of the ninety, my, the most nineties thing about the movie because I think that we've, I think that my response to your answer is is my response there how about that is my answer <laughs> it's very convoluted but i think i understand yeah i've said i've said my fucking piece yeah no i think the same thing like i think to me the most 90s thing about it is something we've been talking about which is just the the idea of the counterculture rejecting capitalism in this way and also this idea of like eccentrics being isolated people and not like extremely online people yeah uh, is so different and it's so charming it really gave me a lot of nostalgia for when i was in college which was you know the early early 2000s like the year 2000 on um because there were you know you could just meet a weird guy and have a fun conversation with him and not have to be like burdened about knowing that he's part of some kind of movement that's ruining humanity well, I mean, yeah, you that's, know? Like, this is the thing about the pre-internet world is that we didn't have to know everything about all these people i don't want to know all of the weird beliefs of people i find interesting exactly. that's the last thing i want to know about i just want to have a fun conversation with you for 15 minutes and then never think about you again can we not just do that can we not just have that i want it so hard um yeah i want but it so bad you can taste it i want it so bad <laughs> i can taste it yeah like fucking patrick swayze um, what do what do you think? So this is another thing we always talk about, Charles. Um, obviously, it's been thirty years since the movie came out, and uh, filmmaking and society has changed in in lots of ways. So, what do you think? Like, we've grown out of since this movie came out. Um, oh, so much of it. Uh, <laughs> the things that we've grown out of. Well, there's the man who owns all the TV sets. I don't know how he's. <laughs> <laughs> he has lots of ipads now i guess i don't know uh, yeah there is a lot of actually i mean to get into it uh analog technology fetishism like uh, people owning radios and people owning vintage tvs and like people owning record players and the idea that having this kind of gear uh was a way of defining yourself of defining your interests um, video cassettes yeah no there's a moment says, yeah. in the movie where somebody says I forget even what they're talking about, but they're talking about some kind of culture. And they say like, oh, this is a rare, I think it's a book. They're like, oh, this is a rare book. And like the idea of that is just so gone. Like that used to be something that had so much cachet and was literally meaningful. Like there were things it was hard to find. And if you were the kind of person that found it, it was like important, you know? <laughs> but like that, yeah. that does not exist anymore in any way, shape or form. I, I feel like something that we've grown out of, and I, I could be wrong on this, is... Um the 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 length at which the woman allows the JFK um, 
uh, conspiracy theorist to talk to her in the bookstore. It's a very it's just, good it's just would not would not happen. I mean, my my girlfriend won't even let listen to me talk about Blu-rays for that long. <laughs> um, let alone a stranger listening to me talk about they, the JFK. Conspiracy. They live together, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> it's very much a, I'm going to go over here situation now. Um, like, you just all of a sudden notice she's been checking her phone like for five minutes and not looking at you, like. <laughs> but it's but I just got Nightmare Alley. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's the only thing. Uh, that's a that's a cop out answer. But I, I I do feel like there's like other people would start surrounding this conversation and being like, "Are you okay? Are you okay? Is everything okay?" There's just like a greater awareness of the uh, of like uh, uh, of a person's vulnerability in a public space now. I don't so, know if that's a, the a correct awareness or if it's you know something that it's a, if it's based off of fear. But I do think there, from my perspective, which is probably wrong, uh, there does feel to be like like I said, a greater awareness of people's vulnerability in public spaces, especially when it comes to um, kooky men. Yeah, rightfully. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Kooky is maybe a like very sanitizing way of yeah. putting it. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't really know how else. Because he, he doesn't actually do anything wrong. He doesn't well, exactly. follow her he's, or anything. He just kind of has a weird energy, you know, which used to be allowed, you know, to have a weird energy. But I Conspiracy think there's a, greater, there's a greater awareness now that people with a weird energy are prone to do weird things that maybe right. you <laughs> wouldn't want to have happen yeah. to you, you know. Are they though? Are I people a good question? Than, you know, you know, it's like the, it's like this, it's like the thing about um, children who get kidnapped, right? Like parents are more worried about children getting kidnapped these days than ever before. Yet they don't actually get kidnapped that much, or we ever. Pump those numbers up. We gotta, we gotta get kidnapping more kids. Put the fear you guys want to start a, you guys want to start a kidnapping club? Yeah, what are we gonna? So, what why do you like? Are we podcast? What, what are we going to do with those kids? Is it going to be one of these things where we get the kids and then we're like, what do we do now? No, we, I we just do wanted like to a, get the numbers up. No, it's like a chitty chitty bang bang situation. I want to put them in a cave and force them to make toys. I mean, obviously, is that oh, all we gonna, were talking about? Yeah. My thoughts oh, were thought, for Partridge Family, Family Band was going to be. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, I thought that's TikTok where you were house, leaning towards, TikTok Chris. house. TikTok house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. That's our entrepreneur yeah. house. We, we yeah. figured it out. We got there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm into this really cool thing lately where I'm like abducting a lot of children and putting them in a TikTok house. I'm making a lot of money. So, do you guys watch um, uh, John Wilson? Do you watch? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a great bit uh, around when they were trying to push it for awards consideration. There's like a video uh, that Nathan Fielder did, which starts out with him and John explaining one of the segments uh, on the show where it's like a person with a bag of bread that they tie to one of the poles of the subway. And it gradually segues away from that and into this weird side thing where Nathan Fielder is like starting a TikTok house with a bunch of teens who aren't allowed to contact their parents. <laughs> I mean, it's on YouTube. I could not recommend this more. That's either. great. Yeah. Yeah. The Emmy nominations came out today. It was total bullshit that John Wilson was not nominated. I mean, I, I feel like that's Emmy. kind of John Wilson. Hey, tell you what, someone who is very much in line with what we're talking about here with Slacker, a guy who is in yes. Yes. of doing his own thing with uh, his own methods of someone who is intellectually curious about the stuff weird people have to say, someone who will wander around until he finds someone interesting. That's actually kind of a perfect place to end here. That's... <laughs> he's like today's Slacker. That's yeah, I completely true. agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Somebody, I, I watching John Wilson. It was like 
the first time I felt like I had seen the New York City that I, I actually live in, like in a TV show or movie. That high maintenance. Know? Those are the two where I'm like, this is my New York. Yeah. That said, though, uh, not not to not to rain on the John Wilson parade. I love yeah. the I love I love that show. But don't you think one of the major differences between Slacker and John Wilson is that John Wilson has to sort of toe this line between am I making fun of or am I on the same or am I like with these people? Whereas Slacker, there is never a sense, there is never a moment that like Linklater is poking fun. Well, you're right, and I think like the, far the, more subtle in that regard. The benefit that Linklater has is that his voice is not the one telling all this. I mean, John Wilson has a real, tangible presence in his own work that Linklater doesn't have to contend with. Yeah, John well, also that whole... also that Linklater's not ostensibly getting real people to show you how they lengthen their dick, right? <laughs> and, right. And, which is extremely funny and that guy wants to do it. And I'm not arguing that it's exploitation. I would never make that argument. I just think one of the big differences, um, the economics of getting something, someone to watch something, you know, I don't think you could get someone to really watch a new slacker. That's as subtle as slacker. That isn't as shocking or provocative. Like John Wilson has to shock a little bit to get people on, on board with him. And, you know, there's like a kind of like post, youtube element to it too where yeah having it be you know real people quote unquote is is more you know it's sort of that's more in the culture now instead of having like actors pretend to be weirdos with weird interests it's like well just talk to the actual weirdos you know like slacker slacker 2021 just talk to the actual weirdos to the actual weirdos yeah um boys it's uh it's been a pleasure charles thank you so much for coming on um and um i will edit this into something that is uh tight and, and cohesive <laughs> in case you have any fears or worries about have, that yeah, i've um, had a lovely time i've really enjoyed it um how, how can people uh check out your work uh so i guess the hub where all of my various uh, freelance work is collected that's my twitter uh which you can find me uh, you can just search charles bromesco or my username which is into the crevasse little 30 rock joke and uh, that is where that is. I, I'm regularly at The Guardian. I do monthly coverage of Netflix's movies for Vulture. Uh, I write uh, for Little Wide Lies. I'm on staff there doing news and reviews. Uh, I'm Wait, Charles, are, 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 Charles, aren't you uh, the writer who has been consistently ranking every Netflix movie? Um, so yeah, I mean, I concluded that project uh, a few months ago. We have kind of how many around. Netflix movies did you watch? It topped out around five hundred. It was entirely too many, a really, a really just untenable number. And so wow. we had to uh, just for the sake of loading the page, it was like messing up people's phones and computers. So uh, <laughs> doing, and how uh, it's a monthly digest instead of one gigantic running list. And before I let you go, what was the worst one, and what was the best one? Oh, good question. I'd have to go and check. I, I think still the number one worst one uh, is Romanian movie. Uh, oh, Ramona. Uh, original title in Romanian was Suck It, Ramona. I can't imagine why they changed it. Uh, which is about like a nerd kid who then learns like pickup artist, men's rights activist stuff to become just like a pussy destroyer. Uh, cool, they, cool, cool. Wait, that's cool. not that's, and you're telling me that that's not an amazing movie? Yeah, <laughs> it's not great. It was not great. Ricky's um, like, what's the name of it again? Was <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, every time this kid is having like an intense sexual fantasy about one of his classmates, there's like a cut to like non diegetic footage of like fingers plunging into a guava or like you know similarly evocative stuff. It's nice. really <laughs> Wait, wait, is that supposed to symbolize something? I don't, I don't get it. Well, we're not. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
And uh, what was the and what was the best movie? I think a uh, number one ranked one, I believe, is Other Side of the Wind, the Orson Welles movie that they facilitated oh, yeah. the completion of and that they released themselves. I mean, you watch that, you're like, yeah, this guy was a god on earth. He was he was dialed in. He heard things that no one else could hear. It's uh, it's pretty incredible work. Hmm. Well, Charles, uh, thank you so much for being here, man. We'll talk to you uh, soon. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I hope to come back sometime. Thanks. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.